This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. Yes, this is Joy 94.9. Welcome to her voice, um, Anne Louise. Hello. Welcome back this week. Yes, I, I kind of uh, snuck off last week, didn't I? You did, but that was all right. Um, now, we don't have Barbara with us tonight. She is lucky enough to be up in Port Douglas. Lovely. Good luck to her. Nice warm weather. Um, but it was quite exciting um, today to have Sarah Waters come into the studio. I know. I believe there was a bit of a buzz around there, joy. There was a little bit of a, a buzz. Uh, one of the other volunteers here described it as lesbian heaven and there were people sort of crowded around her getting getting an autograph or two on their books and DVD covers. I believe, as Betty put it, there was plenty of optical aerobics, as she likes to call it. Oh, I didn't hear Think about say it. <laughs> I had to ask her about it before. Optical and aerobics. Yes, okay. Is it something that you do down Beach Road, Betty? She's like, yes. I still am have, lost. have a wee oh. little perv <laughs> on some good-looking ladies. Right. Well, she was. Um, she's very diminutive is a polite way of saying tiny she was so she was very little and she's very softly spoken and she's got a gorgeous welsh accent yeah um, and she was just lovely to she doesn't um, throw to herself into the middle of it all she's no she was very like nice kind of laid back and, and, and like that yeah yeah she was really cool so um probably everybody who's listening um knows who sarah waters is but if you don't um she's a welsh author she's uh well known for a lesbian protagonist and the historical settings of her books uh, she has written six novels, including Tipping the Velvet, which is probably, um, that was the first one published in 1998, which is probably her most um, well-known and popular amongst the same-sex attracted women crowd, I would suggest. I would say that's probably, yeah, that's definitely a go-to when you're like, hmm, <laughs> am I ready to come out? Oh, I'll just watch one more lazy drama <laughs> and then I'll come out and Tipping the Velvet's just perfect for that. So there's Tipping the Velvet, Fingersmith was another um, popular one. I love the titles. Um, yeah. <laughs> her latest book, The Paying Guest, was released last year. Uh, she's won plenty of awards for her work and her fourth novel, The Night Watch, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, which is a very big deal. And uh, when she came in early today, we started by asking her if she always knew that she wanted to have lesbian protagonists and history um, central to her work. Well, you know, I didn't start off writing with like a grand plan for, for my whole career. I just had um, an idea for, for my first book, which was, you know, Tipping the Velvet. Um, and I'd, I'd been doing some work on lesbian and gay history and the way we think about the lesbian and gay past. And I knew a bit about Victorian gay underworlds and, and wanted to write a kind of fun, upbeat book about lesbian life in the late 19th century. And that became Tipping the Velvet. But then by the time I'd written that, I was kind of both hooked on writing fiction. I realised I loved it and it was kind of the job for me. Um, and I was still very interested in, in history. And um, it, so each novel has kind of grown from the one before it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because um, your work is incredibly well researched and um, I know that you have a PhD which you um, completed in 1995 mm. which I mean I expect anyone who's um, done a PhD obviously has to have an interest um, in research and so that must be a, a huge factor for your work. 
Um, but your thesis title for that, um, Wolfskins and Togas, Lesbian and Gay Historical Fictions, 1870 to the Present. Um, it sounds very interesting. I think it's a, an interesting topic. Um, can you tell us a bit about like that research that you did for your PhD? Yeah, of course. I mean, gosh, it seems like a long time ago. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it is rather a long time ago, but I did, and I did love it. You're right. I mean, I, I you know, researching and um, the solitary work that you you do both as a PhD student and and as a novelist, you know kind of suits me very well really um and that thesis was it looked at sort of different moments in mainly the 20th century but began in the late 19th century sort of moments when ideas about homosexuality were changing or had changed and the way people wrote about the past um in line with that so for example I you know I began with gay men in the late 19th century talking about ancient Greece you know the whole idea of Greek love I mean Oscar Wilde was kind of in that kind of circle to a certain (laughs) extent you know at a time when homosexuality was so kind of debased and um, criminalized um, there was no way to talk about it positively by setting it in the present but if you spoke about Alexander the Great and you know talked about the sort of Greek heroes and their homosexual loves it was a way of being positive about homosexuality. So I started there and then I looked, I went into the 20th century, I looked, for example, at the way women have written about Sappho. You know, lots of lesbians obviously have appealed to the idea of Sappho. Um, There have been other historical icons, Queen Christina of Sweden, for example. She's an interesting woman that lots of people have claimed in positive and negative ways as a kind of lesbian model. I looked at Mary Reynolds writing in the 1950s, you know, those, again, stories about ancient Greece and the classical world. And, and again, a very positive way of writing about about gay love at a time when, in in the modern world, you know, gay love wasn't it wasn't possible to write positively really. And then I ended up in what was then the present day, the nineteen nineties, looking at writers like um, David Rees and Chris Hunt, Isabel Miller. Um, Jeanette Winston to a certain extent, Ellen Galford, writers who were very confident of their modern gay identity but were writing about the past in, in interesting ways, you know, claiming claiming um, icons and models and heroes for gay people from the past. And it led totally into my own, to my own fiction, definitely. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, I... Um yeah, I mean, you've done the research, so <laughs> I'd rather read, um, you know, the, the work that somebody else has already done on it. But to, to look at that historical aspect of it, to see that there has always been um, people there writing, um, even though it wasn't necessarily Yeah, you know, and of course, open. you know, we weren't taught that stuff at school, mm. you know. Um, I remember as a student coming across Lillian Faderman's book, Surpassing the Love of Men, which is basically a history of lesbianism. And I and it blew me away. You know, I was sort of 19 or 20. I'd just started a relationship with another girl. But the idea that there had been um, women loving other women, women setting up homes together in the 19th century, in the 18th century, you know, and way before that, was just fantastic and very empowering. And I think that's the thing, you know, gay communities and gay people have always used the past as a way of supporting the present, as a way of saying, look, you know, we've been here for a long time. You can't say that we're freaks. You can't say we're unhealthy. You know, you can't say that we've got to shut up and be invisible because we've always been here. And of course, homosexuality, you know, has changed as our ideas 
about homosexuality have changed. But that, that's part of what makes it interesting for me. And with, with my novels, I both want to kind of say, you know, yeah, you look, here's the 1940s, the 1920s, the 1890s. Here are women, you know, loving other women. But they're not doing it in quite the way that we might do it. And that, that, that's fascinating, I think. Mm. And so is that, um, like, I mean, you've mentioned empowering before to find um, these older works. So is that a deliberate thing on your part to have lesbian protagonists and to have um, lesbian love stories in your work? Is it partly as an empowering thing for, for people who might be reading this or is it just purely because, you know, that's what you're interested in writing about? It's mainly just where my interest lies, you know. It's not like I've got this mission to kind yeah. of... Um, remind everybody about lesbian and gay history I think it's more that um, I'm interested in the past I'm interested in domestic life because we don't get told so much about those about domestic life you know about what went on behind closed doors what went went on in people's bedrooms what went on in their bathrooms (laughs) Um, so I'm interested just generally in those rather secret histories histories of everyday life really Um, and I'm also interested in, you know, in the secrecy that surrounds lesbian and gay lives in the past um, and in trying to recapture them in trying to reinvent them, perhaps, if we don't actually have the information. Um, and I, there is a political element to that. You know, I know there is. But, but basically, you know, I'm just doing what any novelist does, which is to find, find stories that intrigue them, to, to create characters that can embody kind of issues and themes. And I just want to write with kind of emotional realism really about about these worlds and and just yeah just tell tell a good story at mm. the end of the day um which you obviously do um very well um but it, i mean it has turned you into a um kind of a lesbian icon i suppose um which as you say isn't a deliberate thing but i think you know i mean as a lesbian it's it's fantastic you like you want to um, whether you're reading books or watching movies or TV or whatever, you want to see characters that are, you know, somewhat like you. Now, I don't have anything in common with or much in common with, um, you know, people in Victorian England, but it's it's nice to see those relationships played out. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, we are a significant proportion of the population. We should see ourselves represented. And we do sometimes see ourselves represented nicely and respectfully, but we, we often don't. You know, even now, we often see ourselves... I mean, lesbianism is often presented in a kind of really porny kind of way that doesn't just doesn't feel very authentic to me. Um, so it is, yeah, it is kind of important to me in the novels that, um, you know, my, okay, my characters are lesbian, but all I'm doing is I'm just putting them at the centre of of a, of a story. We're used to seeing lesbians on the sidelines of stories if we see them at all. But, you know, all I'm doing is just putting them at the centre of a story. And, and in a sense, that's kind of, it's, it's kind of really important in my books, but it's also really incidental. You know, they're just there. And the, their stories aren't really about their sexuality. They're about all the other things that everybody has to deal with in life, falling in love and um, being betrayed, being hurt, you know, loss and desire and grief and intrigue, you know, just all those issues. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ Community Radio Station, Joy 94.9. Now, we have already listened to part one of this um, wonderful interview, and now we're going to listen to part two of the interview. And we'll continue by asking if she thought of writing of writing any non-fiction work, given her interest in queer history. I haven't really. I love writing fiction. Um, I mean, I write the odd small kind of non-fiction piece I suppose but mainly about about other people's books I suppose um <laughs> introductions and 
I mean that. But for me, there's this just this basic excitement about telling a story um, and um, creating a world. Um, you know, inviting a reader into this world and taking them on this journey al- along with the characters, an emotional journey, you know, um, a, a tense journey, a frightening journey, um, that I just get a, um, a real um, thrill out of doing that. And so I think fiction fiction is my medium, really. Now, your stories are often set in London or in and around um, London, and so they're exploring some of the, the queer aspects of london's history lesbians i mean in general um haven't been our history hasn't been as well documented as that of gay men does that make it difficult to do some of your research and to write accurate stories of the time well it doesn't it doesn't i mean it's true isn't it i mean you know gay men have often left more of a mark on the historical record because um you know gay male life has been criminalized um so gay men have been arrested um oscar wilde you know great big public um, kind of display, really, of homosexual issues in the late 19th century. And we've never really had an equivalent for that kind of thing. I mean, in the UK, you know, lesbianism was was never criminalised. And um, we had the Well of Loneliness trial in 1928. That was probably the nearest we got to it with that, you know, the Well of Loneliness being um, banned. Um, I haven't heard of that trial. Oh, really? That? Yeah. Well, The Well of Loneliness, you know, the novel, the Radcliffe Hall novel. Um, I mean, it's a very inoffensive novel, really, but it was a, quite a strident defence of, of lesbian life, lesbian love. And um, uh, I think it was the Sunday Express launched a kind of campaign against it because they saw it as corrupting. And uh, the Home Secretary got on board and banned it. It went to, to court. And so it became a really, really kind of public, public thing. And, did, of course, did an awful lot to advertise lesbianism and advertise the novel um so it became for for many decades the well of loneliness was the lesbian book that that people might have heard of or you know might have read um but on the whole no lesbian life has has sort of got under the radar you know un, un, under the radar of this of the historical record um and we have what we have a kind of fragments um you know we might have police records about women cross-dressing some women we know you know lived lived in, almost in marriages with other women with you know pass, passing as men and were only discovered by accident or something we don't know were they lesbian were they were you were they what you might call trans you know we don't know um but it's very suggestive material all the same so there's things like that there are sort of odd letters like um, or diaries like Anne Lister's diaries from the early 19th century um you know a, a Yorkshire gentlewoman who kept secret diaries in code and it turned out that she was recording her many um, passionate lesbian affairs. Um, so there's bits and pieces like that on which, as a novelist, you can build. But at the same time, weirdly, not having much evidence can be a bit of a gift for a novelist too because it, make, it means that your job is to fill in those gaps and to kind of um, make things up. I mean, hopefully not in a anachronistic way or an insensitive way, but um, to sort of say, OK, we don't know what, you know what it was like to be a lesbian in suburban London in 1922 but you know here's what I think it might have been like um and that's um that can be a very powerful thing that can be just as powerful I think as as actual you know history Mm -hmm. writing yeah now you moved to London yourself because you're 
Welsh. I'm Welsh. And after um, your undergrad, I think, at uni, you moved to, to London. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I did a BA in Kent and then an MA in Lancaster. And then I moved to London with my girlfriend at the time after that. And I've been there ever since. So I've been in London now for <laughs> um, ooh, about 30 years. No, a bit less than 30 years. And was that, um, I mean, was part of that, I don't know whereabouts in Wales you grew up or whether or not it was a, a bigger city, but was part of your move to London just to move to a big city? Was it because London has such an active queer culture? What was the reason for that? Um, it was the sort of big city thing, I think. I mean, no, I grew up in a really small town in southwest Wales, a town called Nayland, which um, is tiny. Um and actually wasn't gay, you know, wasn't gay as a teenager, had a boyfriend, although he later came out as gay, so we were kind of a classic <laughs> as, as <they> story, do. <laughs> yeah. So I was a kind of a bit queer as a teenager, but didn't, didn't um, I, I fell in love with, a, with another girl at university, and we were together then for many years, and so, yeah, after we left university, we moved to London, and um, began to seek out the, you know, the possibilities that London offers in, in the way of lesbian bars and just the whole lesbian subculture and this was um the late 80s and early 90s and it was quite a good time to be to be gay in london then there were lots of things going on it was quite it was still quite a politically active time um but kind of lesbian and gay culture was kind of blossoming it seems to me so there was a lot of energy around in that period yeah it was good how has London changed, like the queer culture in um, mm. London? London, I've read some recent articles that some um, gay venues um, have started to, in particular, lesbian venues have started to close down. Is that something that's changing, or? Well, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think we've been the victim of our own success. You know, I mean, it's become much more routine or ordinary now for young, um, for for young people to be much more relaxed about their sexuality i think you know and so to be um it's been it's it's more ordinary for 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 kind of mainstream bars and pubs and clubs to just feel gay friendly Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so there isn't that need anymore i don't think that strong need anyway for us to find our own places to socialize in because we can kind of do it in lots of different places lots of different ways um so yeah it's true i mean lots of the gay bars that i knew when i was Young and was actually going to bars, <laughs> places like the Candy Bar. That's gone now, um, and you know there are other places, but of course a lot is done online now. That's a big change mm. as well. That so much socialising is done on the internet. Um, so again, there isn't there isn't that need to go out and claim that physical space. Um, there are still lots of gay men's places, I think. But yeah, London has changed. But I, you know, on the whole, I think this is really good that that. There is much more fluidity around sexual identities now for younger people in, in London. I mean, I, in other places too. But of course, London is, is particularly good at that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really great thing. Now, Tipping the Velvet was your first novel. Um, it was the first book that was turned into a TV series. And it's being turned into a stage production. Yeah, right in, now. Yes, yeah, so it starts in it. like a few weeks. It does, in yeah. a couple of weeks at the Lyric Hammersmith, which is a fantastic old, glorious old Victorian theatre in West London. Um, that It's still got the lovely interior and it has a modern shell around the building. And it's a really great theatre. It works a lot with the local community. It works a lot with young people. It does a lot of kind of edgy, interesting shows. And um, so, yeah, they're um, currently rehearsing a lovely, um, lush version of tipping the velvet which i'm really looking forward to seeing (laughs) it must be a nice feeling i mean you've had four of six novels now turned into um tv series so it must seem like just the next step to have a a stage production being made now 
It's, I mean, it's something different. It's, it's, it's been lovely, actually. I, you know, I'm a big theatre fan. Um, and I, wrote, I actually co-wrote a little play last year with my friend Chris Green, which was enormous fun, um, just to see the other side of, of the kind of theatrical production. So the fact, yes, that Tipping the Velvet is now happening. There was also um, a stage version of Fingersmith in um, the US <coughs> earlier this year at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which was a great success. I went over to see it. It was fabulous production, really exciting. So, yes, for me, um, you know, it's another chance to revisit the story, to revisit the characters, and um, to see this marvellous translation that takes place from the page um, to, to kind of the 3D, you know, and the, Im- the immediacy of theatre. And, it, of course, it particularly suits a novel like Tipping the Velvet, which mm. is about the musical, but also is a very kind of theatrical, fun um, novel about performance and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a really good show. You're listening to a Joycast from GLB TIQ Community Radio Station, Joy 94.9. Uh, now we've got one segment to go uh, with our interview with Sarah Waters. Um, and we continued our discussion uh, by talking about the fact that four out of her six novels have been adapted into TV series and asked whether Sarah would ever work to develop one of her novels into a screenplay herself. I can really see the appeal of doing that, I sort of intellectually, you know, because, um, it, again, it's a translation and, and it's screenplays, if you ever see them, they're incredibly pared down. They mm. might be like 90 pages or something, very spare on the page. And it's all about capturing the essence of a scene, you know, which might be just a couple of lines of dialogue. And, of course, novels, my novels in particular, are quite <laughs> sprawling and leisurely. Um, so that... that um, the difference between the two forms really, really interests me and I can see it would be a fascinating move to do that. But um, I think to do it to your own novels is hard. Somebody, um, a writer friend of mine said it's like, would be like performing surgery on your children. You know, you'd actually it, rather attach somebody, <laughs> somebody else put the knife in. Um, so I've always been happiest at just handing the books over to a, a script writer and um, letting them get on with it really, you know. And have there been? I have read that you've been um, overall like fairly happy with the mm. um, adaptations. I suppose if I mean if you're handing them over, yeah, you know that that's kind of it. You need to leave it to somebody else's. Yeah, and of course by the time I do hand it over, you know I'll have met with the production company and met with the scriptwriter and have a good sense of what they plan to do and and feel confident that they're not going to kind of muck around with it. That's why I would have given them the option in the yeah. first place, you know. Um, and yeah, I've been, um, on the whole, it's, they've, it's been really positive experiences for me with those adaptations. It was fun, for one thing, to just <laughs> see it happening. You know, I usually visit um, the filming w- once or twice, and, and that's always good to see. And there are things about all the adaptations that I think are brilliant. There are other things I think are not so good or you know, that sort of do diverge from the novel a bit. But that's okay. You know, it's somebody else's project, mm. really. You know, the book is there. That's my book. I wrote that. And the, the screen adaptations, they're always somebody else's thing. Um, and they're much more constrained, as you say. Your novels tend yeah. to be between, like, five, 600 pages or so. And you, just, you, can't, <laughs> you can't put everything into a TV show. That's right, especially if it's, like, 90 minutes or something. Yeah. You know, a lot has got to go. Um, so my favourite ones do tend to be the longer ones, like Fingersmith, which is three one-hour episodes I think um and it's you know it's it uses a lot of my dialogue and it really really gets the mood of the book I think I'm very fond of that one Mm. I read as well that you've had roles in them as (laughs) extras and I I have to admit I haven't um I didn't spot you um in them I've seen Tipping the Velvet and and Fingersmith is that is that a fun thing to do yeah it was tremendous fun I haven't I haven't done it with uh with the later ones but yeah I did it 
I did it with three of them. Um, I did. I just did it for tipping the velvet initially. Somebody said, "Oh, why don't you, you know, put on a costume?" And so I was like, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> it was like dressing up. Next minute, I was strapped into a corset and a bonnet, and there you go. So I know I'm right at the opening credits. But then, because I'd done it for that, I did it for. Um, Fingersmith as well where I have more of a starring role in that one I'm, a, I'm one of the <laughs> servants or something at one point um, but yeah it was it was really good fun yeah. now your latest uh, novel The Paying Guests uh, was published last year uh, it's set in 1922 mm-hmm. um, this book which is a new time period mm. um, for you that you hadn't worked with um, before so can you tell us a bit about the book um, and what what London was like for, for lesbians then? Yeah, well, the book is set in sort of what was then a, still a bit suburban um, in South London, Camberwell, um, and it's set in a kind of middle-class home inhabited by a, a young unmarried um, woman called Frances Ray and her widowed mother, and they're middle-class, but they've been running out of money. They've lost their servants. They have to bring in lodgers, the paying guests of the title, who are um, a young married couple, Leonard and Lillian. And um, sort of unexpectedly, Francis and Lillian become quite friendly, and then they become a bit more than friendly, and um, it leads to all sorts of terrible and wonderful um, and scary consequences. So it's a kind of a love story that, that's also a bit of a crime story, really, and it was it was a great novel to write. It was, it's, it's, they go on a bit of a roller coaster ride, so it was quite emotional to write it. Um, and in terms of what, what London was like for lesbians, it was a really interesting time for women generally. You know, women had gained so much after the um, in the wake of the First World War. They'd got a lot of new freedoms. They'd done new kinds of jobs. Um, even their clothes, you know, had changed. If you think of the difference between those Edwardian costumes they used to wear, those great big leg of mutton sleeves and the big hats and the big hair and the long heavy skirts you know by the early 20s they were wearing much um slimmer shorter dresses and you know hair cut you know hair was cut shorter and corsets had gone and things like that so it was lots of there was lots of loosening up going on and that was true in terms of um you know sex and sexuality as well um, birth control was was becoming you know kind of talked about and used and um homosexuality was being kind of discussed um of course it depended what what depended what circles you moved in you know Daphne du Maurier for example living in a kind of arty bohemian fairly wealthy circle she was having lesbian affairs as a teenager and actually both her sisters did too you know relatively unproblematically they were kind of having affairs um but we know much less about what was going on for working class women and lower middle class women um, but certainly change was in the air and sexual adventuring was in the air. So um, for Francis and Lillian in The Paying Guest, you know, Francis, we discover, is a woman who's who's already had a kind of lesbian experience and is very confident about her sexuality. Lillian is married and so is discovering this this stuff for the, for the first time. But they both see it very much in terms of, you know, that life is modern. You know, we've been through this terrible war. We've got an opportunity to to find real love with each other you know we've got to seize that opportunity and I think there was that general feeling around a bit like the 60s you know change was in the air and um people were trying out new things now I'm I haven't finished reading the paying guests yet uh I'm on the um uh I'm on the their friendship is just on the brink Mm, of becoming something more um but I've really enjoyed reading it so far, like I only started a couple of days ago, and <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but it's been I mean because it is I mean for people who want to read it like it's about 600 pages and you sort of, you pick up a book like that sometimes and you think whoa like that's um <laughs> yeah it, like it can be intimidating but it is be, like it's so beautifully written it's been such a good read so far and I'm just like I just want to go and like keep reading it to find out what happens for these two good good I hope you do <laughs> yeah I mean it is it's um I wanted to really do justice to their growing intimacy you know just in the first part of the book Lillian is is a married woman you know it's 1922 she's not gonna be seduced by by Francis like you know overnight it had to be a slow and um kind of tentative development between them and I really wanted to that to keep that and then you know things get a bit more dramatic in the middle and um they they go into kind of scary places later on um but yeah it's a book with with distinct different phases to it but with this hopefully you know this kind of driving narrative through the heart of it too this joycast is a free service brought to you by joy 94.9 support joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.